I sort of believe that most writers, even writers who would not identify as horror writers or writers of the uncanny, because if you're a writer and you're like plugged into details hard enough, everything's a little weird. Um, the more you pay attention, the weirder things are, or the more beautiful or interesting things are, or the scarier things are. Welcome to the Converge Lecture Series podcast, a co-production of 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. I'm Jake Brownell. Today on the show, we're joined by Carmen Maria Machado. Machado is an author, essayist, and critic. Her debut short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, was released in 2017, and it took the literary world by storm, blending elements of horror, fantasy, and stark realism. The book explores themes of power and sex, pleasure and alienation, and the particular way these forces shape the lives and experiences of women. Her Body and Other Parties was a finalist for the National Book Award and winner of the Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Fiction, the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize, and numerous other distinctions. The channel FX is currently developing a TV series based on the collection. Machado grew up in suburban Pennsylvania, and she now lives with her wife in Philadelphia, where she's a writer-in-residence at the University of Pennsylvania. She was invited to speak in Colorado Springs as part of Converge Lecture Series, which brings writers and poets to the city to share their reflections on art, life, and the topic of moral beauty. I spoke with her in advance of that talk. Carmen Maria Machado, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. Thank you for having me. I want to just begin at the beginning and ask when it was that you started writing and and what inspired you to to start writing? Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, I'm one of those people who, like, I started writing as soon as I could hold a pen. My dad used to have this special stationery for work, and he would bring it home in, like, piles and piles of it. And I would um, make little books, (laughs) um, sort of write my own little books uh, when I was, you know, four or five six so I was like one of those kids (laughs) so writing I feel like has always sort of been in my blood to the point where when I was in college and I actually did uh, study photography for a while my dad said to me like I hope you keep writing because you're such a good writer (laughs) and then of course eventually I returned to it and it became my profession so yeah um, so I've been doing it for basically as long as I can remember I mean my parents were huge readers not necessarily themselves but they read to us a lot and my great-grandmother used to read to me and you know I was just encouraged a lot when it came to books and reading so I feel like writing is sort of the next natural step. It's an interesting question to me how people make that leap from being a reader really to a writer to feeling like they have the capacity to actually tell stories and not just sort of read them and enjoy them. Do you remember sort of when you first started to feel as a writer, like, like you had that power? (laughs) I don't know if it's even that conscious. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I mean, definitely as a kid, I read a lot and then I imitated what I read. And so for example, like, you know, I would read a lot of Shel Silverstein poems, which I absolutely loved. And then I would write like my own versions of them which were obviously (laughs) terrible (laughs) Um, but it was like my my sort of desire to like connect with um, this thing that I had read and sort of do try it myself 
which is ultimately like how writing works. It's like you're you imitate until you don't imitate anymore. And even then you're still imitating a little bit. Like you've always got like these people that you've read kind of in you, right? And you're always kind of pulling on them and drawing them out in various ways. I, I guess so I guess for always, I don't think if I ever like consciously sort of recognize the flip from like, you know, reader to writer. I feel like I always thought of them as like these sort of synchronous things. And, and you grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and, and how you grew up and how that has kind of informed your style as a writer. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, it's funny because when I was first born and when I was young, we lived in sort of closer to Allentown, the city. And then when I was in mid-elementary school we moved my parents we had a house built in the suburbs we moved like out into the suburbs which was really right on the edge of like country like farmland basically and of course now it's very built up and developed but at the time was like a lot of cornfields and a lot of big empty spaces and I remember thinking growing up that like it was so boring that like I lived in the most boring place in the world you know and I really wished I'd live somewhere you know like a city or, or like even more rural which would be more interesting but I just felt like you know, this place that I was growing up in was just not helping me in any way um, as a writer, not having me have any like experiences. And what's funny is when I got a little older, what I realized was that actually there was quite a lot of like very interesting metaphors sort of built into the landscape. Um, maybe they weren't the ones I would have chosen, you know, as a small child who loved to read like dramatic, like boarding school novels and like, <laughs> you know, fantasy and whatever. But I did have this sense of when I got older, sort of remembering like, oh, yeah, like, you know, there was a, a factory nearby that I think made dog food. And every so often, like, the wind would shift and you would just get this, like, deep smell of, like, dog kibble. <laughs> there were these big fields next to my house, which, like, mostly were just full of kids playing sports. But then um, there were these, like, weird patch of trees that was, like, nearby. And me and my friend would go, like, wade in this, like, standing water, which was, like, so stupid. Like, I'm shocked we didn't, like, die of, like, who knows what. But um, I don't know. There was a house nearby that was, like, half fallen down and... Uh, we would just kind of go near it but like not too near it because it felt like somebody scary lived there like there were just like lots of little things that actually like turned out to be very interesting in retrospect and it was just like an interesting kind of childhood but you know albeit one in in the suburbs um or like the way that like all the houses kind of look the same on the inside and I babysat for a lot of our neighbors and it was weird like going into a house and like knowing where things were because the same builder had built all the houses um, even though I'd never been there before. So there's just like all these like weird sort of uncanny details that like, so I think I think only when I was older did I sort of appreciate the nuances of like the experience. Whereas when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I just wish I lived in like the English countryside or like <laughs> New York City or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, speaking of sort of the uncanny and sort of surreal aspects of American life, I suppose. It, it seems like that's a, a prominent theme in in your work. Um, is, is that something you feel particularly, I guess, keyed into a, as an observer just of the world around you, these kinds of surreal details and, and the uncanny? Yeah, and I think I sort of believe that most writers, even writers who would not identify as horror writers or writers of the uncanny, because if you're a writer and you're like plugged into details hard enough, everything's a little weird. Um, the more you pay attention, the weirder things are, or the more beautiful or interesting things are, or the scarier things are. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, I feel like that sort of instinct of like, I'm just noticing a lot of strangeness, or like, I've had a very strange day, or like, 
there have been a sequence of events which separately would not be extraordinary, but together are like interesting. You know, like, all those things are like the way a writer's brain or like an artist's brain works, I think. So, yeah. So I feel like that definitely those things are definitely connected for me. Hmm. So, you know, I want to back up and, and just sort of talk a bit about your career and specifically about your debut short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties. Tell me a little bit about where this idea of, of writing about the body, specifically women and, and their relationship to the body, like how did that kind of start to germinate for you as an idea uh, and, and then eventually come to fruition in that book? I don't even know. You're going to get sick of this answer. I don't even know if I was like thinking about it in that conscious way, like, ah, oh, this shall be, shall be my first book. Um, I mean, people say that like you know, your first book is like the book you've been storing up in yourself your whole life. Right. And there's one chance to do that. Right. Like you only get one debut. You get one opportunity to like let out like this thing that you've net that, that you've been sort of holding in. And I think for me, like at the time when I like wrote and sold the book, which was like when I was in my 20s, when I was sort of in this like place of like thinking about the body as fragile in all these ways. Right. Like as a woman, as a woman of color, as a queer woman also as a, a victim of domestic abuse, like there were a lot of ways in which those ideas were kind of marinating for me. Um, and so as I began to like string these stories together and think of them as like a project, as like a distinct project, um, it made sense to me that they were sort of in this conversation about like, what does it mean to be in a body, um, which you can't help but be in, right? Like you have no choice. And so what does it mean to be in that body and to sort of occupy that space in the world? Um, it's funny because obviously when the book came out, like it was right after Trump was elected and like, you know, was right during the beginning of Me Too. And people were like, ah, oh, it's so timely. And I was like, yeah, but it's timely because it's always timely. Like right now we like, you know, we're in a particularly like terrifying moment. But like these bodies have always been oppressed. Like those th that that's not that's never changed. Like we're just in a, a moment that's very um, visual and like obvious right now. So that's interesting sort of hearing you talk about how these stories came to be. Obviously, you can certainly read them as, as deeply political and, and informing our current conversation in certain ways, like you said. But I wonder if, do you think of your work as political work when you're writing it, or is that not really a relevant question to ask? I mean, I think all, all work is political, which I mean is a kind of a common answer to that question. But but I think it's what's more interesting is that it's political even if you think it's not. So, like, you know, I feel like people are like, man, when like women write, it's so political. Or, like, when people of color write, it's so political. Or when queer people write, it's so political. It's like, well, if a straight white dude writes, that's a deeply political thing. You know, like, the, the question of, like, who gets to speak and who gets to – who gets certain platforms and certain audiences and whose work is championed and whose work is not championed and how people arrive at the ability to, like, do things like create art. Like, all of these things are political. Um, and then not, that's even before you get to, like, what they actually have to say, right? But even just, like, the presence of a piece of art is an act of is a political act or it's a it's a consequence of politics um and so yeah again like I don't think of it as I'm you know I'm not sitting down being like put you know pushing my glasses up my nose and being like well like <laughs> you know now I must begin my political project which I think some people do do sometimes mm -hmm. um but I think it's more like there's a reason that this this is the book that was stored up in me you know it's not like it's the only thing I have to say it's not the end of my the things I, I think about in the world, but it certainly is the book that came out first and that seems significant. And so now you're you're getting ready to release uh, your second book, which is a memoir in the dream mm -hmm. house. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that project and about why 
you uh, decided to turn your attention to memoir? Yeah, so um, In the Dream House is a memoir and sort of a part part memoir, part essay. It's sort of hard to it's sort of hard to categorize um, a book about uh, domestic violence in queer relationships. Um, and I definitely did not expect my second book to be a memoir. That surprised me most of all. I think people are people are surprised, but I'm extremely surprised. Um, and so for me, I was working on I was finishing her body in other parties, um, and I was at a bunch of residencies, and um, I was like editing some stories, uh, you know, using with my editor from Grey Wolf, Ethan Nasowski, and sort of in between, I was picking away at this project. Um, and then at some point, so before her body and other parties came out. My agent said to me, you know, Grail was asking if you have any other books that you would want to, you, we want them to look at. And I was like, you know, I actually do this like weird, like experimental memoir that's like about this extremely niche topic. Um, and if they were interested in looking at it, sure, they can look at it. And then they did. And, and then they wanted to buy it. And I was like, oh, OK, I guess this is happening now. So it sort of happened in this weird, weirdly quickly as well, which is funny because, you know, selling my first book took a million years, it felt like. And so it happening as quickly as it did was surprising to me. But yeah, so in this book, I use various genre tropes to sort of create these like micro sections that are sort of a mix of memoir and essay and sort of critical and cultural commentary criticism um, to talk about queer domestic violence, my own experience with it, and also the reason that we don't read a lot about it. And and sort of the, the, the origin of this book was not, I mean, was my ex- an experience I had, but also the fact that when I went to go look for creative nonfiction, so like essays or memoirs about domestic violence in lesbian or in queer relationships, I couldn't find any. There have been a few books that have been written that have sort of touched on it or have sort of addressed it or have addressed it but not really called it that, but just not that many. Um, and I was like, that's so weird that this is an experience that I know happens, but why is it that there aren't any books about this or it's really hard to find books about this? Um, and all everything I was finding was just like legal stuff or, you know, sort of more work geared toward like social workers or therapists or whatever, or psychologists, but not so much like people being like, this is what happened to me. Um, and so, yeah, so I really wanted to, I wanted to do that. And and then the format came out and it's this very sort of weird sort of fragmented structure. Um, yeah. So like I said, I, I, I was surprised that that was my second book. <laughs> like, I definitely did not think that I was going to sell a second book and also that it would be this. But, you know. And what was the process of, of writing that story like for you to, to really examine this thing that had happened to you? through that lens and and sort of bring all of your uh, skills as a writer to bear on on your own experience in that way? I mean, it was hard. You know, it's funny because I have written about this topic through fiction before, like several times, actually, um, including a story in her body and other parties and a couple others. And it's interesting that there's something about turning to nonfiction as the device because it, it it changes your relationship with the material um, because there's no there, I mean there is a kind of flexibility but not the same kind of flexibility you have as a fiction writer where you can sort of you know invent things and do things um, and with nonfiction like there are things ways you can do that and there are different ways of writing um, but you still are limited by the material that you have right and there's no, sort of no hiding behind other characters like you just are sort of out there and so it was really difficult you know and and sort of the more I wrote 
And the more I researched, which also was really hard, like it wasn't even just writing about my own experience. It was also like, you know, I spent weeks just reading these like heartbreaking first person documents or like legal papers where they quoted women and and thinking about how little movement had been made on this topic and how, you know, homophobia and other things besides sort of like lean into it and sort of exacerbate it. I just felt really despairing and very sad. And, you know, I would stop. And I mean, it was just, it was really difficult. Like, I, I, I cannot sugarcoat it in any way. <laughs> like, I, I definitely, as I was writing it, as I was editing it in earnest, not after I had sold it, but like when I was like trying to finish it last year, I really wished I hadn't sold it. I was like, I really wish this book did not exist. I wish I why did I do this? Like, what, what, what was I thinking? Um, so yeah, it was super hard. And I don't know if I would do it again if you, if I had known how bad it was going to be, but it was just like a, also just exercising a totally different muscle, you know, like a writerly muscle. Um, and I, I do write, like I do write essays, but for me, essays are much harder than fiction. Like I can write a short story in like a week if I really put my mind to it. Um, and an essays take me months or years like I'm just a slower nonfiction writer because when you write nonfiction you're you're trying to figure out among other things what you think and that's like a really hard thing to know what you think like it, it seems obvious and straightforward but it's really not when you think about your memoir as it's about to come out what are you hoping that that this book can offer people in the in the form of solace or, or whatever else yeah, I mean, I think the question of what people hope their work does is so hard because after a book comes out, like, it's so out of your control. Like, the way people read a book or receive a book is truly, truly, like, it's, it's the scariest thing in the world. It's way scarier than having to write it because you're like, okay, now it's just out there and, like, <laughs> it's doing whatever. And I feel like, you know, for this book, like, I have obviously a lot of hopes and dreams about what it can offer, but also, like, I have to be, like, sort of realistic and concrete about what I hope or what I want. And I think for me, what I sort of realized writing the book and what I talk about in the book is that one of the reasons I really struggled to sort of understand what I was experiencing was that I didn't have any sort of cultural or life touchstones that sort of clarified for me what was going on. That like we have these very distinct narratives about domestic abuse and they involve, you know, straight couples, straight white couples, you know, there's like a big beefy man and like a tiny woman and then he like gives her a black eye and like we have these very very sort of like distinct narratives and like we don't know what to do if like the narrative is inverted for example if like a woman is an abuser in a heterosexual relationship and like the man is the victim which does happen or if you have a queer couple or like a couple where one of them is like trans or genderqueer like the minute we leave the heterosexual cisgendered model people get very confused and very stressed out and then they don't know what to do with that information or even like how to think about it and then we and also you just don't see it reproduced anywhere right like so and also like domestic abuse by nature is like very hidden and very secretive so like even when it is happening like it's just not coming into the public consciousness and so the narratives we stick with are narratives of this like very distinct like heterosexual sort of model and so what I talk about is how like when I was in high school like I was one of those people who was like in high school in the early 2000s and I had a crush on a friend. I, like, wanted to kiss her. And I had all these thoughts about her. But, like, I didn't know that meant that I was queer because I just didn't know. Because I was because I didn't have those narratives. And so I talk about, like, if I didn't know I was queer even though I wanted to kiss a girl, like, in the same way, like, I didn't know what was happening to me was domestic abuse because I had no models for that. 
so to come back to your question like about like what can it offer like I wanted to offer like a north star where it's like here's a thing that's fixed and you can look at it I mean it doesn't mean that your experience is going to be exactly like that and it probably won't be because everyone does have like their own weird signature unique experiences but like it's like a point of data you know that we often don't get so that's a thing that I know it can be like I you know I can't know like if it'll help this person or that person or give them solace or make them angry like I can't control any of that but I can say like this is now a data point that I'm giving you like I carved it out of myself it f-ing sucked oh sorry I don't know if you can fucking swear sorry it really sucked and like uh you know and here it is and like I that's what I can do for you for like people in this sort of abstract way which I, I feel like is a kind of a sad answer but like that's what I can do having been through that process obviously slightly differently but but with your your first book um with her body and other parties i'm curious to note if there were things about how that book was received in the world that surprised you yeah i mean a lot of it was a surprise i mean i didn't expect the book to be nearly as big as it was i mean i thought i would barely earn out my advance if that you know i was sort of ready for it to be like a good but like you know quiet book and so I was very surprised when like people just went crazy for it and like I was just getting invited to all these events and like it just kind of kept spiraling and spiraling and spiraling and I was like oh my god this is wild but then of course sort of the other side of that was that I would go to these events and like you know again when you have a story especially one that people haven't seen a lot of or they needed it in some way it's like lancing a boil you know and all the stuff comes out because people are like oh my god I didn't realize I needed this book and now I did need it I'm having a lot of emotions I'm feeling very strongly about it which is beautiful and like I've had that experience with my, myself with books where like I've responded to it very viscerally and strongly and so people would just respond to it in that way and that surprised me because I was like here I was like you know toiling away writing this book you know for years and years and being like oh I hope it does okay. I hope, you know, I don't know, like maybe, I don't know, maybe a school pick it up or something. You know, I just really got lucky that it just hit this note and like everybody responded to it really strongly, which is wonderful. Um, I mean, but now I'm sort of expecting it. <laughs> like now I'm like, okay, like <laughs> I remember how the last one went, which surprised me. And now hopefully I'll be less surprised. I'm wondering if that experience, folks kind of coming up to you and, and wanting to share their stories and talk to you about how your work had impacted them, if it changed the way you think about as you're writing your stories, like, do you think more about your readers or in a different way about your readers uh, now that you've really seen so many of them and seen them reacting to your work? I try not to, only because I feel like if you think too much about who your reader will be, you'll go, like, you lose your focus. Because also, like, I have lots of different kinds of readers, you know. I have, like, wonderful, like, young queer readers come up to me and they're, like, delightful and are, like, 22 and they're, like, oh, my God, this book, like, blew my mind and I loved it. And, oh, my, you know, and I, I my girlfriend and I read it together and I'm, like, oh, my God, that's so cute. <laughs> so there's, like, that reader. And then I also get a lot of, like, moms who are, like, I'm buying this for my adult daughter or I'm buying this for my young daughter for when she's old enough to read it. Or women like, I'm buying this for my sister, you know, or husbands saying, like, I'm buying this for my wife. I had different kinds of readers. And so what I'm saying is like, so like for this memoir, like I can imagine it as like, okay, like I'm writing it for like queer people who are maybe are trying to learn to identify what this relationship, what an abusive relationship might look like. But also like I've even, I mean, I've just started doing like kind of some press, a little bit of press and stuff for the book and like, I have people who are like, I'm straight, but I was in a major- mostly sort of psychologically and emotionally abusive relationship. And like this book really spoke to my experience. And it's like, did I necessarily write it for that straight person? But also 
I'm really glad they got something out of that and like that's really meaningful to me um and that's his own kind of north star right where it's like not to the queer element of the relationship but like the, the this sort of thing in the book which is like what does it mean when like you don't have a it, the abuse that happens to you is like not as clear-cut as like a black eye you know like what do you do with that and how do you sort of how do you sort of navigate that psychologically and so like that was a useful thing for this for this reader so sort of shifting gears a little bit I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about how uh stories come together for you and and really what drives you to start a story it kind of depends it depends on what I'm doing I mean, it just depends on, like, where I am in the project, if there is a project, if it's for a commission, if it's... Because, you know, I do do I do, do stuff occasionally for, like, anthologies. Sometimes I just write a story. Like, it's not for anything, but I wrote it because it was just burning inside of me. Or I have an idea that just feels really, like, ripe and, like, ready to go. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this. Um, sometimes it's, it's more concentrated than that. Like, I mean, in the first collection, um, in my first book... Um, you know, I had basically written the whole thing except for Eight Bites, which is the last story that I wrote. Not the last story in the collection, but the last one that I wrote for the collection. And I wrote that for two reasons. One, because it, it was so it's initially it actually was a um, a retelling of The Little Mermaid, which ended up not being becoming. But the sort of the initial idea was the sort of Little Mermaid analog, which is why it's like at the beach. Um but 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 and and it ended up not being in the anthology. I ended up just going right into her body and other parties. But what was really interesting about that process was that then I was looking at her body and other parties, and I was like, oh, like I don't have a story about fatness in here, explicitly about fatness and the fat body and like the politics of the fat body. Um, and that felt like a missed. It felt like a thing that I needed. Like I was like, I'm a fat woman. Like I think a lot about fatness. It's it would seem weird to me if that didn't exist in this book. And so, you know, then I was like, oh, cool, I'll, I'll, I'll do this like Little Mermaid retelling. I'll like kill two birds with one stone. I'll like do this anthology story and I'll do this thing. And then it ended up not being the anthology. And then it ended up kind of burying the Little Mermaid sort of material. But um, and then it ended up being this story that I needed in that space. And sometimes, sometimes it's like, I'm, I mean, once you get closer to the larger project, like it becomes clear what you need um, or what the story might need. So it really just depends. Sometimes it's just like, oh, I have a, I have a I want to try something or like I have a little a little inkling, a little you know itch and I want to try to scratch it um yeah so it kind of it kind of just depends another story that I'd be interested to know kind of where it came from and and how it evolved is uh real women have bodies it's such an Mm -hmm. interesting story and it's hard for me to conceive of how you would ever come up with that idea and I'm just curious to hear how that story came to be yeah so it's actually one of the oldest stories in that book I, I mean I was in grad school when I wrote it as far as I can remember the inspiration was I liked the title um the title came to me I was thinking about that sort of expression people say which is like quote unquote real women have curves and I was like hmm that's so interesting what an interesting and problematic <laughs> phrase um and then I was like it's weird because it just it's like real women have bodies right like that's literally the thing that makes that's that's literally it like it's just having a body makes you a woman and so it felt very like a quote-unquote real woman and so it it felt to me like a funny little phrase and then I was like what would that look like as a story and then I was like hmm well we'd have to have women that didn't have bodies how would they not have bodies oh I guess their bodies could like fade away for some reason I mean it was just it was that silly (laughs) like it was just like how do I do this how do I do this and then eventually I was like oh okay um, and then actually the setting of Glam um, is actually a real store that at least used to be in the Coralville Mall, um, which is right next to Iowa City. And I walked past it one day and I was like, what 
um because it just had those black walls and the big mirror and it had these like beautiful flouncy dresses and I was like man that's great and I like wrote that down and then eventually I just sort of pulled all these elements together and like wrote a very old draft of it like again this was like a long time ago (laughs) this was like 2011 probably um and yeah um so that's that's it basically and a story like that to me reading it you know it it feels like there's something sort of allegorical happening in the story and in the this idea of the bodies fading and all of that um but then of course it's it's also very elusive thinking about what does it all mean and and how does it all kind of make sense when you piece it together and i don't necessarily know that it's supposed to in in a very literal way but i'm curious also how you think about that in terms of how a story um the information it transmits i suppose the kind of the moral force that it has is that something that you think about when you're writing or or is it just not that's not the process yeah i try not to like say what my stories quote unquote mean i never want my stories to be like a very simple like ah it's this allegory or it's this one to one sort of like ratio which i think is a trap that sometimes um writers who are writing any kind of non-realism will fall into um and even realism in its own way but like especially with non-realism they'll be like oh it's like racism but it's with ghosts instead of people or like it's like racism but it's like aliens instead of people or it's like sexism but it's like this you know and it's like one step removed from whatever the thing is and to me that's not very interesting so I, i like things to be a little more muddled and complex and um yeah, so I feel like if you have a read on it, on the allegory or on the allegorical elements of the story, like, you can absolutely, I mean, you, you, you should, and I, I would hope so, but I feel like I can't even really say. Your work is often characterized as horror in some way, or and to me, one of the things about that is that it, there's a, a bleakness and, and not always a sense of there being any escape from the the things that are bleak about the world that you've created <laughs> and and obviously in some ways that's also just a function of the fact that you're writing about a world that is our own world but I'm curious how you think about sort of this question of whether your your characters need to have some possibility of escape of transcendence or of sort of redemption or you know when you're thinking about a character who's who's kind of trapped in a situation that really is um terrible on some levels which a lot of your characters seem to be do you ever wrestle with that question of the happy ending I suppose no (laughs) (laughs) I guess I just don't feel the need to offer it I mean sometimes you know you do I mean I think I mean the fact that I put difficult parties at the end of the book was very important because it's really the only the only story that has like a fairly like optimistic ending which is a lot to say about a story that's about like you know rape and like a lot of other horrible things like but it, you know in the, in the moment at the end of that story she kind of reconnects with herself which is like sort of this really important moment and like I wanted to put that at the end because I was like you know I feel like I've really like been super mean to my readers this whole book because it's it's a bleak book and I, I feel like giving them that little bit at the end would be kind but I I also you know I don't feel the need to do that because I'm like sometimes things don't end well you know like sometimes like you know thinking about like eight bites sometimes your life ends and you've like made a terrible mistake and there's nothing you can do about it you know sometimes you know your body is forfeit and that's that's it you know sometimes or at the husband's edge sometimes like you know you are undone by these forces that are working against you um sometimes you are lonely sometimes you know i i mean i just sort of feel like saying otherwise would be 
um, sometimes you like you know you're left a broken person and it's really hard to pick up the pieces and I feel like if I was just like but then at the end it's fine like that would be like not accurate like it wouldn't it wouldn't be true to like how I see the world so yeah so you know we've talked about your memoir but I'm curious also about the fiction that you're working on and what what types of stories are you interested in or, or topics or ideas are you kind of chewing on um, I'm really interested in a lot of history right now. I'm working on a couple of things. Like I'm right now, I'm also like working on. They they announced it recently. Like I'm doing a comic for DC Comics, like a limited run series with Joe Hill, um, called the Low Low Woods, and it's it's sort of set in this fictional version of Centralia, Pennsylvania, in the '90s, which is this town in Pennsylvania that's been on fire for like 50 years, um, because of the coal mine. The coal um, is on fire underneath the ground. And so um, I've been reading a lot of books from like the past, you know, and that's like very interesting to me. And I think in the past, before I wasn't really that interested in history. And I think a combination of like my wife is really into history. So I think that's part of it. And I just think also like, I don't know, I feel like as you get older, you're like, I'm going to read a biography. (laughs) Like that's how you know you're like getting older. (laughs) You just get interested in reading biographies suddenly (laughs) for no reason. Um, Or like letters, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, I just feel like, I don't know, I feel like I'm more interested in history than I was before and, and all kinds of history, not just like one particular era, but, um, yeah. So I've been like doing a lot of reading about that and like a bunch of other stuff I can't really talk about, but yeah, I'm just like, I don't know. So yeah, that's like a thing that I've been interested in recently that I wasn't so much before. I mean, I keep continuing to be interested in horror as a genre. I mean, the, the comic series has like a very strong sort of like body horror element to it. Um, which I love. Yeah. What is it that that keeps you coming back to horror as a genre? A, it's just a, a genre that I love consuming. Like I love watching horror. It's like my favorite. I'll always go to that first, for whatever reason. So that's definitely part of it. I don't know. I I think it has the possibility for so much subversion. Um, again, I'm so interested in the uncanny anyway that it just feels like a really natural genre to like move into from there. Um, yeah, I don't know. Horror is just where I'm at right now. Lastly, I guess one of the things I like to ask folks in these conversations is just about legacy and thinking longer term about uh, your work and and the impact it might make in the world or or the ways in which it might sort of outlive you, I suppose. Do you you ever think about that? Do you ever think about your your body of work and and what it might have sort of to offer to, to history on some level? Wow. Well, I think, I mean, I think the interesting thing is that I, I do think about it in the sense that, you know, when I read a book from the past, especially deep in the past, you know, like this person died long before I was born. I'm always really fascinated in the way that like, you know, it's like reaching across history. It's like I'm learning something from like, you know, Virginia Woolf or whatever, even though we never met and we were separated by many decades. And, um, you know, I don't even know if she would have liked me very much, but like I get to like tap into this part of her brain and like she had this conversation with me like across time and that's really cool. And so I think about it in that sense where I'm like, man, I wonder like, you know, after I die, will people like read my book and then like be having a conversation with like a dead version of me, (laughs) you know, like that's kind of cool. I mean, I think that if you're as a writer, if you're being practical and realistic, like, you know, there are lots of books that come out every year and like how many of them actually stand the test of time. Not that many. I mean, if you think about like, you know, oh, like 100 years ago, like what was being published and like most of those books that were like bestsellers, like you've never heard of and you'll never see because like they just went away. And so I feel like um, there's also that practical part of me where I'm like, yeah, like maybe people <laughs> read it after I've died, but maybe not. And either way, it's fine. <laughs> you know, it's like I'll be dead. I won't care. Um, but yeah. 
thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. It's it's really been a, a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Of course. Thank you for doing what you do. Yeah, thank you so much. That was my conversation with Carmen Maria Machado. Her forthcoming memoir is called In the Dream House, set to be released in November. This podcast was produced by me, Jake Brownell, for 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. Converge is a nonprofit program bringing some of the biggest names in contemporary poetry and literature to Colorado Springs. For more information and a schedule of upcoming lectures, head to convergelectureseries.org. For more episodes of the Converge Lecture Series podcast, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'm Jake Brownell.